0: And as we continue in worship together, if you would open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 17. And if you're able, would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's word from Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 through the end of the chapter. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From who did... Do the kings of the earth take toll or tax from their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, and Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give an offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel, take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. You may be seated.
1: As we consider God's word this morning, let's pray and prepare our hearts. Father, we now pray and ask for your spirit to help us To teach us, to further conform us to the image of your Son, in whose name we pray, amen. In 1517, a few years ago, it was the same year, by the way, that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the doors of the Wittenberg Castle Church, 1517, a man by the name of Raphael Sanzio began a painting of Christ's transfiguration. You should be able to see it on the screen there. This painting showed Jesus at the top with the Mount of Transfiguration with the disciples, Peter, James, and John there, and everything seemed to be bathed in light. However, if you notice at the bottom of the painting, the other nine disciples are portrayed there desperately trying to cast out a demon of an epileptic boy and failing miserably. It's quite a contrast. In fact, it's a great picture of the contrast of the Christian life in many regards because there are those moments when it seems as if everything is glorious. Jesus is there in his full glory and all is well, but then there are those moments where Everything seems to be stacked against us. I know oftentimes we talk about the, the valleys and the mountain peaks of the Christian life. And in some regards, that's what I'm talking about this morning. Because this side of heaven, that's what life will look like as even, even as disciples of Jesus. As followers of Christ, we know that there will be those moments when we are encountering Jesus in the fullness of His glory in, in, in that regard, or, or we, we we sense a closeness to Christ and, and things, spiritually speaking, seem to be going really well and we just feel that union with Jesus, but then there will be, the, be those moments where it seems as if we are failing miserably. As we consider the rest of Matthew chapter 17, the point, I believe, that is being made here in this complete chapter is you have that picture, the transfiguration in the first half of the chapter, and then in the second half of the chapter, miserable failures that the disciples encountered. The point is this. We can be... Blood-bought Christians, the chosen people of God, who who have a proper confession, Matthew 16, who sense a nearness to Christ, who are walking in faith and in faithfulness, experiencing many Christ-exalting moments, and yet continue to experience failures as men and women of God as we consider the second half of Matthew chapter 17 it's it's those failures that we want to consider today and as we consider the failures that these disciples were struggling through i think that these failures also help inform us and warn us and even prepare us for our own failures our own struggles that may be similar to these of the disciples that we see here or failures that are different altogether. Let's walk through these one by one. I want to sort of, as as we consider these, these, what I call discipleship fails, if you will. Not that, the, not that discipleship does fail. It's just failures of disciples that are often prominent. And so I think that when you consider some of these, if not some, maybe all of these, That you're you're going to find yourself in familiar territory as we look at some of these struggles the disciples had. Eve, just think about this. Even having encountered Jesus in the fullness of His glory, they were still struggling. They still had their moments. They still needed Christ just as much after the Transfiguration as before. So let's consider these together. Number one, I want to, to, to look at this encounter with the demon-possessed boy, and what I call a, the disciples' failure here is a misdirected faith. We know the, the story set up for us in ver- verses 14 through 21. We, we know that the struggles that the, the disciples were facing here was that they couldn't cast out a demon. Someone with a physical problem, we know, seeks the help of Jesus. So it's particularly this time. This is not uncommon to the ministry of Jesus, is it? There are oftentimes that people with physical problems come to seek help with Jesus. The difference here is that they had first gone to the disciples. No success. So now this father comes to Jesus and he's inquiring with Jesus, Lord, help my son. He's 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 in a miserable state. He's an epileptic, epileptic and and he suffers greatly. He falls into fires. He falls into the waters. We, We have to keep a constant watch out for him. Brought him to your disciples, and they were useless. The text actually says they could not heal him. Mark's gospel puts it this way, they were not able to heal him. Now, that's somewhat puzzling because if you read Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 through 15, we know that Jesus had commissioned his disciples to go out preaching the kingdom of heaven and They were also to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, and cast out demons. That's what they had been given, delegated by Jesus. That's their responsibility. They were to go preach. They were to go to heal. They were to go raise dead people, cast out demons, do all of these miraculous signs and wonders. And so it's puzzling here because now they seemed unable to do what they had been given power to do previously. Why is this? Well, Jesus gives us the answer. Verse seventeen. Jesus answered, "O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you?" Who's he talking to there? Is it the disciples or to the to the father and those around him? Most likely, it's to everyone at this point. But he gets more specific to the disciples later on because they come to him privately, and they're like, "Jesus, why why could we not cast out this demon? We've done it before." Done it before, and he says, "Because of your little faith, because of your little faith." Now, in this rebuke that Jesus, and it's a kind rebuke here, but it's a rebuke. In this rebuke, we we can easily deduce that the disciples were struggling to do something that they had done previously, but now that they couldn't do it. They they couldn't carry out. And so did Jesus take the power away? Was he sort of setting them up uh, to be failures here, just to trick them, pull the rug out from under them, so to speak? I don't think that's the case. I think it's Probable here and, and based upon some other passages when, when you see the disciples interacting with Jesus that that perhaps this this power that they had maybe had had gone to their heads a bit and some even in, some even speculate that that they were showing off at this point the text doesn't say that but, but you could maybe see that but at least at Seems that, that it's this power that they had, and especially after the Transfiguration, maybe had gone to their heads a bit. He says it's because of your little faith. Now we know about a similar situation in the book of Acts, Chapter 19, verse 11. We read there, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. But then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them. It's a bad day when the evil spirits talk back. Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? The man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. It's a bad day. This became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they continued, or excuse me, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. What you see there is a failure on behalf of some to improperly do ministry. And Jesus is bigger than that. And he continues to be faithful. And many people continue to come to him. And the word continues to increase and prevail. But you see problem there the problem in this account specifically was a misdirected faith they were trusting in something other than Jesus at this moment a couple of things that we should take away from this misdirected faith number 1 there's a warning here there's a warning here the warning is that when is that we as disciples we we can get to a point when our faith in Jesus Decreases and the faith in ourselves increases. Dangerous territory. When you begin trusting more in yourself than you do Christ, bad things are going to happen. I mean, these men were facing a significant problem. I mean, casting out demons is not just like washing dishes, right? A spiritual significant problem that was beyond their own ability, and they seemingly tried to rely more upon their own strength than that which had been provided to them, and they failed. Even as disciples, we know we know we're saved by faith. Saved by faith, but even our faith in Christ can 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 grow weak at times, and we can struggle. Even as a seasoned disciple. And just think all that these men had encountered. And here they are floundering. Friends, when you I think it I think it's true. I think the more we grow as Christians, the temptations increase. Because as you become more grounded and more competent in your understanding of Christ and understanding of the Word and and your ability to serve, there is the temptation, there is the temptation to think, I've got this. A lack of faith hinders us greatly and it hinders our ability to serve others. It's what you see here. Their lack of faith was affecting and impacting someone else. So just know that even even when you're struggling and your faith is growing weak and you're wrestling, it's not just about you. But that unbelief and that that faith that's weak at that moment is going to impact those around you and those that you are called to serve. Friends, don't ever be so foolish to think that you've got this. You don't have it. Jesus has it. So, lesson, warning, is that we need to quit trusting ourselves so much and trust Christ more and more. The best thing that we can do when we are facing a challenge or circumstances that are beyond our control, that beyond our means, is to simply humble ourselves and acknowledge our limitations. And to trust in the one who has no limitations. It's a warning, but there's also a reminder. The reminder here is this, is that we never outgrow Jesus. You you don't come to Jesus and move beyond him. You come to Jesus, and your life is built on Jesus and sustained by Jesus and governed by Jesus the rest of your life. You never outgrow him. Sometimes I wonder if, if, we, if we would never say that. I mean, I, if you would say that, we need to sit down and talk. But I don't think we would ever say that. I don't think there's a person in this room would say, yes, we come to Jesus, but we move beyond him. I mean, that would just be a foolish thing to say. Not to mention a heretical thing to say, right? No one would say that, but practically, practically speaking, that's how we often act, isn't it? Jesus gets us salvation. He gets us in the door. We treat him like a ticket. Jesus is not a ticket. It's a terrible illustration when it comes to salvation. He is not your ticket. We throw tickets away. He's not a means to an end. He is the end. And so when you think about Christ... You never outgrow him. You know, we will often deceive ourselves into thinking that the, more we, that the more we grow in the Lord, the more we do for the Lord, that somehow that we get to this point where Jesus is always going to bless and, and we're just going to continue to thrive. And sometimes we, we buy this lie. If I just go to church. If I just read my Bible like I'm supposed to, if I do all that Christian stuff, things are going to be Okay. James Montgomery Boyce put it this way, Nothing, however good in itself, can substitute for a personal, continuing, trusting relationship with God. Nothing. And our failures, even in our failures, you shouldn't be afraid of them. You also shouldn't go pursuing them, but you shouldn't be afraid of them. We, we, we learn from our failures. Failures are often a great opportunity for growth. They expose our hearts that are prideful and that are selfish and all the things that go on in those hearts. They, they expose our hearts that are often trusting in something or someone other than Christ. And so it serves as a means to bring us back to where we need to be if we're going to flourish as a disciple of Jesus. So let that be a reminder for you, for me this morning, is that we never outgrow him. We, we need Jesus from the moment you confess him, from the moment you take your last breath. See, the disciples had a misdirected faith. They, they seemed to be trusting in, in themselves a little, much, a little too much here. And Jesus calls them out on that and helps them understand why it was they failed. Little faith. Little faith is a failure. We need to continue to grow in our faith. But number two, a number, uh, second failure here, and, and I would refer to it this way, and it's particularly there in verses 22 and 23. It's what I would call a misconstrued, misconstrued interpretation. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, look, again, Jesus tells them again, as they were Gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. I mean, they were tired of hearing this, right? This is probably the third time now Jesus has said to them, I'm going to die. This time he adds a little element there that wasn't there before. He says, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be delivered over. There's a hint of Judas there. Somebody's going to betray me, I'm going to be delivered into into the hands of these men, I'm going to die, three days later I'm going to raise from the dead. And we're told in this text that the disciples were greatly distressed. They were not worshiping, they were not rejoicing, they were distressed. They saw this as problematic. The reason they saw this as problematic is because There was no category in the minds of the disciples for a suffering Messiah. Especially now after the transfiguration scene. Again, they thought, hey, the kingdom has arrived. The king is here. There was no no room in their their hermeneutic, their understanding at this point, which is somewhat surprising, and I'll go on about that in a moment. There was no, no room in their thinking about or for a suffering Messiah. They were anticipating a kingdom that was going to be soon established, and they were going to have prominent roles in this kingdom, and all was going to be to be well. Rome was going to be destroyed. The kingdom was going to come, and, and Jerusalem and and all the surrounding places was going to be filled with this great kingdom of God. But the problem is, that the kingdom that they had in their mind was a kingdom of their own making, not a kingdom that Jesus came to preach. You see, in their scheme, there was no need for a suffering Savior. There was no need for this death. So, so still, even here in Matthew chapter 17, while they embraced him as the Messiah, they still struggled with his work as Messiah the necessity of the suffering servant. Now, it's surprising because had they read the Old Testament scriptures or remembered them, they would have known that the Old Testament was clear about this role of the suffering servant. I mean, passages like Isaiah and others, many others, should have been prominent in their minds. They had, they, they, I mean, they had Moses and the prophets, And the reason I say that there's this misconstrued interpretation is that it doesn't seem like they were reading their Old Testaments well or at least remembering them well or they would have understood exactly what Jesus was talking about because he is the fulfillment of what the the Old Testament pointed to. Now, they weren't alone in this. We know that this is also true of some other disciples, not of the twelve but of others who followed Jesus. We know from Luke chapter 24 on the road to Emmaus, Jesus encounters two of his followers. They're talking about all the things that they had encountered after Jesus had died. Verse 16, we're told their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So Jesus comes up on the scene as they're walking along, ta- discussing the things that had happened. So Jesus kind of comes in. sort uh, of. They're unable to recognize him for who he is. And so he just sort of joins in the conversation, listens a little while, while they're talking about all these things. They're rehearsing everything. And then in verse 25, Jesus speaks to them. Luke 24, verse 25, he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Did you not read your Bibles? Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? It's not what he said. Beginning with Moses and the prophets. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures. The only thing they had at that moment was the Old Testament. The things concerning himself. Later on in verse... 44, he says to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, and that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. The disciples were struggling with the proper interpretation of what the prophets and Moses and the Psalms pointed to. They were wrestling with that. They were were developing a kingdom of their own thinking, of their own making, and not a kingdom that that the Scriptures had, had communicated. It's a good spot to stop here and be reminded of a critical and obvious truth. Friends, God's Word is authoritative. Not our own opinion or our perspective or our own interpretation of His Word. His Word is authoritative. His Word is sufficient. There'll be many things in, in ministry and in the Christian life that are difficult to understand or to even explain from the Word, but it's, it's being planted on the Word. Scriptures that will always lead us to a proper place. It's when we abandon that or redesign or, or reinterpret what has clearly been written that we find ourselves in trouble. Now granted, I don't want to to miss this point. Understanding the Bible is not automatic. It's a gift of God. Luke 24, Jesus opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Matthew 16, Peter's great confession. Flesh has not revealed this to you. My Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. You don't get the right confession. You don't get the right understanding of Scripture apart from the sovereign work of God in your mind and your heart. So you, You're dependent upon that. You should pray for that. You should long for that. Even as Christians, we're praying, God, help help us. Help us understand. I'm praying right there in my seat before I come up here every most every week that God, help us make sense of this. Especially verses 24 through 27. It's a little tricky. Help us to to understand your word, because we don't want to get it wrong. We don't want to develop kingdoms of our own making. We don't want to develop a Christianity that is, that is detached from Scripture, that's sort of our version, right? That's why it's critical that we embrace a healthy doctrine of Scripture by embracing its inerrancy, its infallibility, its sufficiency. Then number three what I would call a misguided conclusion. So, Little faith is failure number one. Not being good Bible students would be failure number two. Number three, what's going on here in verses 24 through 27? Well, this failure, and I, I use that term, I think it is a failure, it's, it primarily rests upon the shoulders of Peter. Apparently, they make their way back to Capernaum, and the collectors of the half-shekel tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? So there's this, there's this question about a tax, a specific tax, and whether or not Jesus had paid it. Or what in the world is this tax that they're talking about? Most likely, it, it's what many refer to as the temple tax, and this tax was collected for, for for the upkeep of the temple in Jerusalem. Now, remember, this is not Jerusalem, they're in Capernaum, but, but it was a tax collected in all the towns and all the areas that was collected each year from Jewish males over 19 years of age. Now, it had its roots in a tax that was commanded in the law of Moses then in Exodus chapter 30, verses 11 through 16. There was a tax established there. Uh, a tax that was a half shekel, and it was required of every Jewish male over nineteen years of age to help with the with the um, tabernacle, with the upkeep of the tabernacle. But apparently, this tax had sort of become permanent. The tabernacle goes away, the temple comes, and they sort of keep it. And we're not really even told in the the Exodus account of the frequency, most, most agree that it was just a one-time tax. Once you turned 19, you paid the tax, and you moved on your merry way. But now they had sort of made this an annual thing, right? Pre-IRS. This is the beginning of the IRS, right? got to pay the temple tax. Keep it up. And so Jesus comes into town, and apparently it's the time where they collect the tax, and, and they ask Peter, hey, does your teacher pay this tax? And Peter, yes. Yes, he pays the tax. The assumption there is that he's already paid it. But apparently Jesus had not paid it yet, according to verse 27. So Peter is quick to jump to conclusions. So what's the point of this? So so, so you, you have them asking, does he pay the tax? Peter says yes, speaks for Jesus. Comes to his defense a little prematurely, but he comes to his defense, and, and then Jesus takes him and gives him a little lesson. Using the tax as the point to make the, or as the, the example to make a, a point, and Jesus was not coming here to, to teach Peter about the tax code. This is not a lesson on tax codes and understanding how you should pay your taxes. There's a greater lesson here that Peter was not getting, that was part of his failure. So Jesus speaks to him saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take, or toll, uh, take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said, then the sons are free. And so Jesus, in other words, is, is saying here, just follow the logic, if kings or the government do not collect, collect taxes from their own sons, and that's the point he's making, they're not collecting taxes from their own family. These tax collectors are taking taxes from everybody else then God the Father would not require a tax to support the temple from his own son and implied there is even from his adopted sons. And so, Jesus, as the Son of God, is not required to pay the tax being collected is is in essence what Jesus is saying. Number one, because he comes, (laughs) there's no need for the temple now that he's here. That's another sermon for another day. But, his point is, is that there's no mandatory requirement from my father for me to pay this tax. So he's he's claiming an exemption here, right? I don't need to pay this, but, but I'm going to, lest they be offended. So the miracle takes place in verse 27. He tells Simon to go to the sea and cast a hook, which is a rare thing. Usually they catch fish with nets, but he says, take a hook this time and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you're going to find a shekel. Take that and pay the tax for you and for me. So what Jesus is doing here is he is teaching Peter a very important lesson. he's, He's in essence saying, listen, as a disciple of mine, as a as, as, as a follower of Jesus, as, as one who's now been brought into the kingdom of God through, through Jesus. There, your citizenship is, is not of this world, and so there are certain requirements that this world imposes upon you that and, and technically speaking, you're not, required to, you're not obligated to fulfill. Our citizenship is in heaven. You can go read about that in Philippians. However... As Christians, we do have an obligation to fulfill duties as citizens of the world, even though much of what we end up following is motivated by greed and corruption. We can get on to a whole, whole message on, on how our actions and responsibilities ought to be to the government. But Jesus is just simply making a clear point here is that, listen, while your citizenship is in heaven, you have a heavenly citizenship, while your focus is, is heaven, we're still going to pay this tax because... Most agree that Peter's a little bit frustrated about this whole tax thing anyway. Yes, he pays the tax. It's a stupid thing, but yes, he pays it. That's basically what most people think Peter's attitude is right here. Why should he have to? Why should we have to pay this tax? But yes, he pays it. So he's almost as if he's questioning this, this tax. And so Jesus is helping him understand, we're going to pay the tax, but we're not, it's not because of an obligation, but it's because we don't want to offend them. The issue of Christian freedom is also raised a bit here. There are many freedoms we enjoy as citizens of the kingdom, but just because we have freedom doesn't mean we take advantage of those freedoms in order to bring stumbling blocks for others. Jesus... Did not want to give the impression to these people that were asking about the tax that he was totally rejecting the temple or even the Jewish people. He came to fulfill the temple and to save Jewish people and Gentiles. He came to fulfill what the temple pointed to and to give hope to those of all nations. The failure on Peter's part here is not just is that he was so preoccupied with the tax, being unpaid or being paid. What's the big deal about this crazy tax? And Jesus is helping him understand a greater lesson. Peter, don't get so bogged down in the taxes. Pay the tax. Lest you be a stumbling block to these people. We came for people like this. We did our greeter training a week or two ago after church, watched a training video, and in that video, the the guy leading it said this, The gospel is offensive, but nothing else should be. And that's, in essence, what Jesus is saying to to Peter. They're going to stumble all over the gospel. He doesn't say that, but Peter says that later on, and, and we know that that's clear. Paul says it's a stumbling block to the Jews. It's foolishness to the Greeks. They're gonna they're gonna be offended by the gospel, but don't don't put up other barriers. It's gonna cause them issues. The gospel is offensive, but nothing else should be. All listen, I think what Jesus is in essence telling Peter, all our choices, the things that we do, the taxes that we pay, the, the responsibilities and obligations that we fulfill in this world. Decisions we make should always be made on the basis of whether or not it will help to advance the gospel. You might be free. You might be exempt from this or from that. But if it's going to cause a significant barrier to be raised, and if it's not sinful, then why cause a stir when you don't have to? Why bring a fence? They're going to stumble over the gospel. We shouldn't create other stumbling blocks. Sometimes we can get so consumed with formalities and rules that we miss gospel opportunities. Churches today, I think, many times are so filled with legalism and formalities and rules and regulations and do's and don'ts and this and that. That they miss opportunities to invest in people's lives and see transformation happen. They define transformation by keeping a list of th- rules and do's and don'ts, and they're important rules, yes. And they find themselves failing because they're more distracted. They're, they're distracted over these formalities and things that, that consume them instead of taking the time to love people. Peter's failure was nothing more than a misguided focus. Friends, life can be filled with distractions, and it's quite easy, quite easy to lose focus, to be distracted, to be bogged down with formalities and rules and regulations and miss gospel opportunities. Jesus saw this as an opportunity to pay the tax so that there's not yet another stumbling block. Not another barrier that's raised. Here's the lessons we take from this passage. Again, it's quite simple. I stated it at the beginning. You can have the right confession, and you can have incredible encounters with God. And still fail as a disciple. Not lose your salvation. If you're truly saved, that's not possible. But you can still fail. You can still fall short. You can still hinder your witness. You can grieve the spirit. You can bring reproach upon the name of Christ. You can, you can cause all kinds of damage to yourself and to others. It doesn't matter what you've experienced. Praise God for those experiences. Praise God for those experiences. Rejoice in those experiences. Look back to those experiences and learn from them. But live in the day, in the moments with your eyes focused on Christ and with the resolve by the grace of God to live for his glory. So what do we do? Take away, quick, quick takeaways, very quickly. What does this teach us today? Number one, know your weaknesses. Know your weaknesses and own them. When you fail, admit it. All of us are failures. Stand up in here if you're perfect. Stand up if you're perfect. Acknowledge your failures. Admit your limitations. Acknowledge your weaknesses. Don't try to live life as a Christian as if you've got this. Friends, you don't have it. Jesus is sovereign. You aren't. John 15 verse 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This leads me to number two, keep your faith personal. The challenge for many of us is that our faith can be more mechanical than it is personal. Our faith can be defined by coming in here and checking the box than it can be on our knees. Before the Lord. Friends, when your eyes are taken off Christ, your witness, your growth, your impact, your relationships will all suffer. Keep your faith personal. You never outgrow Jesus, you can't grow beyond Him. You need Him every moment. And then number three, always live with gospel motivations. Friends, the gospel should inform everything we do. It's the very reason of our existence, and it's the very reason for how and why we live. don't Don't lose sight on your role and responsibility as an ambassador for Christ. Don't get bogged down in the tax code and miss gospel opportunities because you're so consumed with other things. Friends, when you fail, and fail you will, when you hit that valley, when you hit that dark moment and you're unable, you're asking Jesus, why can't I do this? What's wrong with me? When you're you're at that bottom point, friends, the gospel reminds us that in our failures, there is one who never failed. There's one who never failed. And in those moments of failure, we were reminded that down deep in that dark valley, we need to look up to that hill called Calvary and remember that that one who never failed took upon himself our failures at the cross. And he suffered and he died so that our failures could be covered in his blood. Because your failures have stains of blood written all over them. Don't wallow in your failures. but Take your eyes off yourself and look to Jesus and rejoice in the fact that he conquered everything you needed and I need to be accepted and to be found complete in Christ to the glory of God. Rest in the perfect work of our Savior. When you fail, Trust in the one who hasn't, because he will keep you, and he will preserve you, and he will sustain you to the end, guiltless. Let's pray. Lord God, there's not a person in this room that couldn't give a laundry list of failures. Lord, we recognize today that we are a room full of failures, one after the other. Lord, all of us have fallen short. All of us have neglected things that we are to to pursue. And Lord, all of us left to ourselves are just a spiritual mess. But God, we thank you that you love failures, that you are the God who who loves those who can't help but fail. You gave yourself for failures, Lord. You died for the failures of this world. You died for our sins. So, Lord, may we be encouraged, even in the midst of our struggles, even in the midst of our failures, that we have an advocate, We have one who never failed. And that perfect life that he lived is now credited to our lives. So that, Lord, when you look upon us as your people, you don't see our failures. You don't see our our sin for what it is. You see the perfection of Jesus. see the righteousness that is clothed upon us. It's not our own, but it's Christ. God, help us to to see the beauty of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ slain for sinners, killed for failures. Lord, so that when we do fall short, when we do fail, that we would look quickly to the cross, that we would find our forgiveness there, and that we would find the motivation to get back up and by the grace of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, to continue walking in your grace for your glory. How would you do that work in our hearts? Fathers, we hear your word. Help us to find hope today. Help us to find joy and peace and confidence. And Lord, when we're still lacking that, it's because our eyes are not where they should be. And so Lord, may you help us see Jesus for who he is today. May you grant us faith. Lord, help us not to be a people of little faith, Help us to be a people of growing faith. Lord, stir our hearts to respond today in obedience to what you've called us to do. I pray this in Jesus' name.